All right, you can turn in your Bible, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. We are looking for the last few segments of my time with you at Colossians 3, verses 22 through chapter 4 and verse 1. Uh, The title for the message is, What's on Your Resume? What's on your resume? And the uh, text here is dealing with um, both masters and slaves, or bond servants, as it says here in our text, which we would maybe apply in our context to employers and employee relationships. And uh, I think as we look at this text, as I mentioned the last few times uh, that we were together, uh, this uh, is, I think, a text that we would go to for instruction about God's plan for our lives, his desire to glorify him uh, and transform our work experience, how we view work, how we work, and uh, really the relationships within our work environment. And that's uh, the last one which we'll look at today. So three powerful ways uh, in which our the living God, if you would, uh, will bring glory to himself by transforming our work experience. First, it transforms our ultimate goal, our motivation for our work. Secondly, it transforms our attitude and our energy, clean, uh, changing really the way we work, which we looked at last week. And then today, it transforms our relationships with people with whom we work. Um, so that text I'd like to read and then have a word of prayer and we'll take time looking at that third uh, way in which God transforms our work experience. Colossians 3, verse 22 says, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, and do it heartily as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of, of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. It is our instruction. We go to your word to uh, learn about you and your will and plan for our lives. And so as we look at this text this morning, we pray that you would use it to instruct and help us to be able to uh, glean from this uh, truth that will help us in our daily work experience, living in a way that would best glorify and honor you and be used of you as instruments to not only proclaim the gospel to those who we may work with that don't know you, but to encourage other believers and uh, to be able to grow in our experience, uh, our Christian life. So, Lord, we look for you to instruct us through this time. We pray that your spirit, uh, who inspired the Apostle Paul as this was penned, 2,000 years ago that your spirit would also use this to teach and illuminate, to uh, uh, help us to understand. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so as I already mentioned, those three points will help us uh, transform our ultimate goal. Now, that's seen really in all of the, the different uh, ways in which this, these truths are expressed in the text. And not with eye services, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So in the fear of God we work. Um, we do everything we do as heartily as unto the Lord. Um, we we uh, serve the Lord Christ, not men. All of that really validates that first point that really transforms our goal in working. It's not about me. It's not about my agenda. It's not about my boss's agenda. It's really about what God is doing in my life through that work experience. And this text really bears that out. And it's consistent with um, the earlier passage that says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it, 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 it's flowing through the house, as it said earlier, about husbands, wives, children, and now through the employment experience, transforming our goal, our motivation in working, and then uh, our attitude and energy, as it, we talked about last week, uh, this really carries out in this text. You're not doing it as unto men, you're doing it as unto the Lord, which changes the quality of my work. Like, I'm gonna, if I'm going to work to the glory of God, then I should be concerned with what my work looks like um, and how that pleases Him, because I'm serving Him, not the person um, uh, to whom maybe I get a paycheck from. And then, beyond that, it, it changes the energy which I work. I'm not just going to work when others are looking or when the boss is looking, but I will work um, in accordance with uh, the idea that the ever-watching eye of God is upon me and work, so it'll change my energy, it'll change, change um, really the quality of my craftsmanship and my work experience. So uh, as we come to the third point then, it transforms the relationships with the people with whom you work. This is really expressed in that first verse of chapter 4, uh, as we go to Colossians 4, 1, it's, Masters, give to your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Live, if you would, in this statement, the, 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 play, uh, the play field is level. Um, you also are a servant. And so the reminder is, listen, you make sure you treat those under your care um, justly and fairly because you also are a servant under a master. And they are a servant under a master. And so it kind of levels the playing field and makes sure that they understand that they will give an account. So we'll walk through that in just a little bit. I thought by way of introduction, uh, you know, you find in uh, many different ways to try to introduce this. Uh, I'm grateful for the different work experiences that I've had over the years to be able to uh, draw upon in doing this. But uh, a few years ago, Vicki and I went to Mackinac Island. I know some of you really love going to Mackinac Island. That's like this um, place where you just enjoy. I, that's not me. Um, but I, uh, we went, and I did that. It's off my bucket list if it ever was on it. Um, but in our, in our trip to go over there, okay, um, we were on the ferry to go over to Mackinac Island, and we were sitting next to a lady, and she was talking about the Grand Hotel that's over there. And if you've ever been there, um, I've not been in the Grand Hotel because you have to, like, pay even just to tour it. Um, and uh, so I saw it from a distance. That's it. Uh, but this lady was talking about, um, you know, that, that they were going over to be in the Grand Hotel 
and she was talking about just how um, they had, uh, if I remember correctly, and again, my memory to that is not 100% accurate. I asked Vicki to help me with the details, and she wasn't 100% either. So I'm going to give you what I remember, and um, we'll live with the details, okay? But uh, in that, I believe that they had gone uh, as a new married couple or as uh, early on, and... Um, and she was going back now for a second time. If I remember correctly, that was the case. And she was just saying that, you know, this is just the greatest experience because you get to be treated like royalty. Like they serve you hand and foot. They come to your door and they do all of these things. And you feel like you are really special. You know, it's the only time in your life that you will feel like you have, and I don't remember what the rate was. I think it was something like a thousand dollars a night or something crazy like that. I don't know that that's the case. So I know this is live, and so if someone from Mackinac Island hears this and wants to correct the price, feel free to do that. I'll post it. All right. Um, but it was really expensive. That's the point. Way beyond my desire, but even beyond anything that I would ever want. I I don't have a taste for that. I, I don't know about you, but um, I've been in the service industry. I know like what it's to be on the other side of that, and probably many of you have as well. And uh, I know how what it's like to be treated like someone who is below you, and to feel like you are nothing, like you're just here to serve me. And so I could never treat somebody that way. I would have a hard time. It would be difficult for me to even enjoy that. I would actually be probably trying to help the person uh, rather than just the way I am. It's the nature of who I am. But this person was describing how you just have to go at some point because you will be treated like royalty. And I'm just like, okay, whatever. That's not me. But go ahead. So as we come into this text, we find, in, of course, in the culture to whom Paul is written, uh, writing that the, the culture itself included slaves uh, and slave owners. And he's addressing now the slave owners, the masters, uh, those who owned bond servants. And uh, some, uh, as we mentioned before, some bond servants were there because of debt and they were working off debt. Others were there because that was their status in life and they would never go beyond it. And so there were a variety of bond servants in that culture. Um, but that was the case. But the treatment of those, we could um, spend time historically developing it, they were not treated well at all. Uh, for the most part, they were a piece of property to the owner um, and could do with them whatever they wanted legally. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a pretty thing at all when we think of it in our Western mindset and our thinking. Now, they weren't all that way, and there's a couple of accounts that we could go to, but one account I would like to read before we go into the text today, and that's from Luke chapter 7 and verses 1 through 10. You don't have to go there. If you don't want to, I'm just going to read it. But here is um, a centurion who had slaves, had servants. And um, one of them had fallen sick, and he's coming to the Lord Jesus seeking uh, the welfare of his servant. Luke 7, verses 1 through 10, it says, Now when he concluded all his sayings, that is Jesus, 
in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant, and then it says this, who was dear to him? Okay, so just because they owned slaves didn't mean they all treated them as though they were some kind of piece of property. This was a centurion who loved those who were working within his household, and he was dear to him. He was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders to the Jews, to him, pleading with him that to come and to heal his servant. And when they had come to, when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. So. It's obvious then from this text that this was a Gentile um, centurion. He wasn't a, a, a Jewish one. He loves our nation. He isn't a part of it, but he loves our nation and he's built us a synagogue. Okay? And so then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Quite a statement. Here's the centurion speaking to a Nazarite fisher uh, carpenter's son. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. That's a, that's a pretty amazing statement of faith. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am... For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. But he's saying to Jesus, uh, if you just say it, it will happen. Just like when I just tell my servant, go, he does it. So you can speak and send out your servant of healing, and my servant will be healed. Quite a declaration of faith from this man. But the reason I read that was to show that within that whole orb of master-slave relationship, not all of them were cruel, harsh, mistreating, but actually cared for them. They were like um, their own family in many cases. And I'm not justifying nor condemning it. I'm simply stating as a matter of fact that here we have an account of a man who to the best of our knowledge, was not a believer yet, um, or at least was, was honoring the people of Israel and was on his way to being a person of faith and had great faith, but he uh, cared for his servant in a very compassionate way, seeking whatever means necessary to bring about physical restoration of his servant. And not for personal satisfaction or his own personal interest, but actually was endeared to this servant. So as we look at the text today, we find that that when we know Christ, 
no matter where our status is in life, whether we're on the lower end or the middle or the upper end, it should transform our relationships within that. And that's what this is really conveying in this text. It transforms our relationship with the people with whom we work. So as we look at the text in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1, we see that Christian slave owners are being addressed and their own particular challenge uh, is being uh, conveyed to them on how to respond in a way that glorifies God in their context. Now that they have embraced Christ and have come into a Christian ethic, their ethic should be radically different too. Just like um, the bondservants should now be transformed, so they should be transformed, and specifically they must change how they treat those who are under their care. Not using them uh, and not using their status as to trample on people who are under their care. They were just reminded that they were equals to the Christian faith in verse 11 of chapter 3. It says there, There's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So they, they already know that in the Christian faith, they are equal. And now... It's coming down to where they work. Now, most Bible commentaries, uh, as I studied this, and even the writings of the church fathers agree that this passage strikes a very careful balance in moving away from slavery in that culture. Not a revolution, not a radical fast, but it is moving away. It avoids revolutionary thinking on the part of the slaves. They're encouraged to work. Not with eye service, right? Not to revolt. Uh, But at the same time, uh, it compels slave owners to give equitable and respectful care to their bondservants. And in doing so, it was revolutionary in thinking. This was not the way people thought in that culture. As I said when we started this, two-thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves. So it was not kind to them at all. And so it compels them to this. One of the church fathers, Jerome, wrote this, he said, your slaves, this is to the masters, your slaves should find you fathers, not masters. In other words, the way you treat those underneath you should be more like family than they should be like a servant. This was what was being compelled in this text. And so before we break down the text and then apply uh, it to our you know, Christianity and our 21st century Christianity, I'd like to just include one additional thought that comes in the sister passage in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9. It says this in Ephesians 6 and 9, And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So in Ephesians 6 and 9, it, it, it weaves together Uh, the thought that is found in this text, but also adds a couple of other insights into what was going on. What caught my attention is that phrase, do the same things to them. In other words, uh, it has this sweeping charge to the masters that turns all of the prior instruction that was given to the slaves to them as a responsibility. Do the same thing. That is just what was said. You do the same. And 
Oh, by the way, one other thing. That's kind of what you understand as you read this. So in essence, all that was said prior to this point to those below them must now apply to themselves in their context. Now, without rehashing everything that we've said already, but as a brief reminder, this means at a minimum that those who were masters were in the fear of God to treat their bondservants with respect as their equals, to be honest with them, and even more, to do good by them. If possible, helping them out of their present circumstances, not holding them back from advancements, to treat them um, on Monday, if you would, how they treat them on Sunday. Okay? They worship together, now they work together. And it shouldn't be any different. And so as, as you look at this text, it's very clear um, that this is especially helpful in how they are to do their business. Uh, to, uh, to, to take care of those who are under their care and how they handle business. I was thinking as I was studying this text of a verse, Proverbs 3 and verse 27 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is your, in the power of your hand to do so. That's really a helpful verse. If you are in management at all, that verse um, was one that came to my mind as I had the opportunity. As I mentioned before, I was a service manager at a Ford dealership. And in that setting, I hired, I fired, I gave raises, I didn't give raises. All of that was a part of it. And uh, one particular time where this verse really was something that I tried to apply was there was a a man from another dealership who was applying for a position that was open in ours. He was older than me um, by probably 10 or 15 years, uh, was an expert transmission technician, just really good at what he did. Um, But it was our policy not to hire somebody at premium wage and then later find out that they weren't so good after all. Not a good policy to hire somebody at a high amount and then find out that they can't do what they said that they could do and then have to wrestle with that. So I hired him at a very low rate. And I promised him, I said, there's a probationary time after so much time. If you are as good as you say you are, I'd be happy to give you a raise. And, um, and so the probationary time was over, and at the end of that, I sat him down. He was everything that he said he was. Everything. Just could take apart an automatic transmission, rebuild it. Really never had any problems with comebacks. That is, you, you, they didn't send him down the road, and then the next day you have a guy coming back with another problem. He was, he was quality. Worked hard, worked fast, and, and did what he did appropriately. And I gave him a, a pretty substantial raise. Uh, and he went out and he was just like, I can't believe he was true to his word. He was flabbergasted that I would actually follow through on what I thought. This verse was rolling around in my brain. Now my boss gave me a hard time. Because <laughs> he, he gave me the leeway, all right, to give raises. Um, and when he found out the raise that I gave this guy, he said to me, well, you didn't have to give him the whole farm. <laughs> so... so Point was, when it's in your power of your hand to do it, to do good to someone, you do it. 
and it was in the power of my hand. I didn't go outside of any of the parameters which were given to me as a, as a manager. I did everything within the guidelines, and I didn't lose my job because of what I did, but actually um, was, was helpful in this. So here in this text, we, we find masters are, are spoken, and it's, and it's conveyed that they are to treat their servants justly and fairly, knowing that they also have a master in heaven. The scriptures repeatedly address the unfortunate societal reality where people of means use their money and power to suppress, to control um, those who are helpless below them for their own benefit. We find that Old Testament, New Testament, you find this uh, you know, we've, in the reading this morning of, of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, we found both at the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, the admission to those who are wealthy. And so you find that they use their money, their power that comes with it to influence judges to rule in their favor, to hold people in debt by charging heavy interest charges and on and on. There's a litany of ways in which uh, they did this and were admonished in the scriptures. These things bring the ire of God Almighty. He is a God of justice. And if you start to look in the Old Testament scriptures, how many times God rebukes his people for taking advantage of the widow and the fatherless. You will be amazed at how many times it comes up. Even when you go into the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah confronts the people repeatedly for their wickedness, it wasn't just about their sinful relationship to God, it was how they were treating each other. Their horizontal relationships, they were using, um, they were abusing people who were under them. And so both in Deuteronomy, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy and the law, they were encouraged to treat um, people who were, were powerless in their society with, with fairness and justice. And that was true throughout. And we find that oftentimes they failed in doing so. These things, again, bring the ire of God who promises to defend the helpless, to bring about justice in the end. And so while we could spend days looking at those passages throughout the scriptures, that address um, is, is really what addresses the subject here. Just one passage, maybe I'll read from the New Testament, one that's probably familiar to you, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and you will eat your own flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, that, and he does not resist you. This is a pretty, pretty stark passage, and it's, a, and it's a very harsh warning of reality to those who, who, are, who are treating and mistreating their workers below them. And James is saying, you've held back their wages, you've kept them impoverished, You've fattened yourself up, but you're like the fattened calf. And you're going to be sacrificed on the altar. That's pretty strong language. 
And so it's clear, both here and throughout the Scriptures, that God's eternal justice will settle any and all matters that are not made straight here, right? That those who have wealth must not use that wealth to suppress or to take advantage of people below them. That as we were reminded in the opening Scriptures in First Timothy, they, they, they are to use their wealth to do good and to be rich in good works. This is the pattern of heaven as displayed in the incarnation of the Son of God, who, although he was rich, humbled himself and took the form of a servant. Philippians chapter 2. Again, I referenced that earlier in our second hymn, or our first hymn, sorry. So according to Ephesians, the masters were in essence called to a higher standard than the servants because they were compelled to follow all that applied to the servants under their care. And on top of that, they are given this additional instruction. And so as we return to the passage in Colossians, we find two aspects of this additional instruction given to the masters um, that uh, I think are, are helpful to us here today. The first has to do with their business practices, if you would, and the second has to do with their Christian thinking. We might put it this way. They are compelled to practice horizontal equity and vertical equality. That's what you find in this text. And so, first of all, vertical, I'm sorry, first of all, horizontal equity. It compels them, give to your bond servants what is just and fair. All right? Horizontal equity. The Greek word that's translated give is a compound word which means to reach out and to offer. To be the author of. To be the one who occasions something. You reach out. You make the offer, if you would, of being equitable and fair and just. And in this case, it is to be the authors of doing what is right and fair. It is for them to be equitable both in their treatment and in their compensation. One commentary writes this, the meaning of impartiality, the meaning is impartiality or equity, and it's more in place here. The master is not commanded to surrender his status, but to respect the interests of those who are under him who are faithful as his own, and to banish caprice and favoritism. So this is not a command to charitableness, but um, rather where, where, where one gives something to someone who's not deserved, we can look for that instruction somewhere else. No, this is a call to equity, to fairness, not charitableness. Where a fair and honest wage is paid to the workers. While Jesus did tell the rich young ruler to what? Sell all, give to the poor, and follow me, that's true, but it was not a command to everyone who has wealth. It was a command that had to do with assessing the heart of the rich young ruler um, and really put to the test what he had said with his mouth, right? He said, all the commandments I have kept from my youth. Do you remember the setting? Everything. I've kept it all from my youth. And Jesus says, go sell everything you have and come and follow me. And he said, oh, I can't do that. I have a lot of stuff. So I really don't love God with all my heart, and with all my soul, and with all my strength. 
right? It was, it was meant to assess the heart of the rich young ruler, not as a universal command to everyone who has wealth. Here, they are called to horizontal equity. Pay what is fair. Pay their wage that is fair, that is, that is appropriate and proper. Don't withhold from them. Don't hold them back. Don't suppress them. Don't hold them down. Here, masters are called to be fair and just, to treat those under their care with the mind of paying out what is the going rate around them. They must seek to, to perfectly balance the scales of justice, not taking advantage of their position, nor holding back from those who are under their care what is due them. It's an amazing thing and revolutionary in thinking in this culture to whom it came, and certainly applicable to us, which we'll come to in a little bit. Second, first, horizontal equity. Second, vertical equality. It reminds them that they too were our bondservants who have a master in heaven. Don't you love that? Just in case you think you're the high and mighty, <laughs> you also are a slave. And you also have a master in heaven. So don't get too puffed up and inflated. In their business practice, they were to be honest and fair, but in their thinking, they were to take it even a step further and see that they were equals. That these who were working underneath their care and underneath um, their governance, if you would, were their equals. There may have been a different social standing in that culture and in this life, but they are very much like those below them because they too have a master in heaven. This is meant to level any thought of superiority or pride that they may have felt for being entrusted with the wealth that they had acquired or inherited, right? And people get that way. And I've, over the course of ministering for 27 years here, have come along people who had money and felt like somehow they were on a higher spiritual plane because look what God has entrusted me and look at the power that I have. It's a sad thing to see it. And here, God is saying, you also have a master in heaven. Let's just level things down. Don't get, your, don't get yourself too high and mighty. Don't get your chest puffed out at all. It's meant to level that thought of any superiority. Their lot in life may be better, but it was only a stewardship given by God. And they would give an account of that stewardship one day. And they had better be ready to give an account. This text and others make it clear that status in life had nothing to do with standing before God. Consider these texts. And again, these are familiar to us. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. But by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, no ethnic difference, whether slaves or free, no social status difference, right? Um... All have been made to drink into one spirit. Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And in Philemon, Philemon 15 and 16, it says this, For perhaps he, Onesimus, departed for a t- while for this purpose 
that you might receive Him eternally, forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the spirit. So here is um, this, um, this slave who had gone away, who could be judged by the law, and Paul's saying, receive him back, not only for his status in life, but more importantly, for his status in heaven. Here then, the masters were very clearly reminded that their position was only a temporal position, and that they should not let it go to their head or to their heart to think that they were superior in any way. They have been trusted with a stewardship from God and would give an account to Him one day for their management and for the management of their lives and the care of those who are under them. By any human measurement, they had advantage. But before God, they were equals. Okay? The Christian message and the gospel revolutionizes any and all the human relationships that are twisted by sinful pride. And there are many of them. And we are seeing it in our culture all over the place, right? Sin causes alienation and isolation. It fuels pride that separates us and all humanity, causing class envy, gender tension, racial prejudices, and even generational hostility. Rich versus poor, one ethnic after another, over another, um, male versus female, and old versus young. But we can't succumb to that. Not as believers in Christ. The level playing field is that we are all slaves to one master. And we better keep that in our mind and not get allow any of the, the other things to fuel sinful pride. All of these that I just mentioned and more are fueled by that very thing, sinful pride. But we must change if we are a follower of Jesus Christ. Consider the words from the first epistle to the Corinthians. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21 through 23, it says this, Were you called a slave? That is, when you came to know Christ, were you a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can, be made free. All right, if it's, if it's an opportunity to, for you to become free, be made free. Rather, use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. But I love that. Talk about just leveling it. Were you a, are you a slave? Or is that the way God called you? Don't, don't be worried about it. Are you free? Consider yourself a slave. Right? Equality. There's no upper echelon in God's kingdom. There is only one majestic being to whom we all bow and worship, and all of the rest of us will fall the same way to our knees. So as you take these truths that were given to this context, where slavery was real, and you put them into our context, oh, there's a lot of application and um, not a lot of time, which is normal for me. And let me just, 
I, I wrote down five key words um, in uh, my mind that this applies. Accountability, first of all. Accountability. You also have a master in heaven. Life is a stewardship. We don't make life about stuff. We shouldn't. Life is a stewardship. And we all are stewards with the resources that God gives us. Both the time and the talents he gives us. And also in the monetary treasures that he gives us. But we're all stewards and we're all going to give an account to him. And so uh, we have to look at that stewardship and understand it in our uh, in and whatever the Lord gives us um, that we will give an account to Him. Do you want to have a lot? That's great. That means you are a steward over more, and you have to give an account over more. Okay, that doesn't mean to be <laughs> lazy either. All right. The point is, life is a stewardship, and we are all accountable to God, and that's what this passage is teaching. It's saying to the masters, you also are underneath authority. So don't don't get too inflated. Accountability, opportunity. And this is more conveying the, what, what I meant in the third point, that it transforms our, our relationships with the people with whom we work. Okay? Maybe you're... You've, risen in your field of employment and you're a manager over people. What a great opportunity to be able to convey what servant leadership looks like. To show uh, what it looks like to what equality looks like. Oh yeah, you may be up higher on the pecking order in the business that you're in. But if you can relate to those who are there, who are working every day, and you can roll up your sleeves and do the same jobs they're doing, and you can conduct yourself in that day, what a great opportunity to display Christ to people. This passage really speaks of opportunity. These masters had the opportunity um, before them in that culture, and so us as we look at this passage, gives us opportunity. Thirdly, humility. Humility. There's a lot of ways that pride works into our life, doesn't it? There's a lot of ways. And if you're a person who's a senior, which I'm regretful to admit that I'm there, okay, all right, I can get the senior discount at most places already, all right, so I'm there have to admit it. Don't look down your nose at young people. Be humble. Just think back at all of the dumb mistakes you made when you were a kid. (laughs) I have my share of them, and I would not, I would be ashamed and blush to admit them. Okay? It's so easy to let anything Come in the way. And if you're a young person and you're looking at an old, older person, learn from them. Humble yourself. Learn, learn from the, the things that they can teach you about life. 
because they have a lot of experience. I'm so grateful for our church body. We have such a such a, a great blend, multi generational, young families all the way up to seniors, and again. But all of that is a part of our body. So many churches today are one or the other. You walk in, and it's either everybody is like mid thirties below, or everybody is gray haired or bald, which I am. So, okay, that's sad. That's really sad. Those believers are missing out on investment generational. I didn't mean to speak on this because this is masters and servants, but all of those areas can cause um, tension. In, and so, uh, first of all, accountability, second, opportunity, third, humility, Fifth, I put inferiority. I'll come back to the fourth. Inferiority. That is, it's easy to um, to feel less when uh, when you think of this subject that's being communicated here. If you were in the status of a slave, to feel subhuman, to feel less than. And the scriptures are very clear here that there's no need to feel inferior, that the ground is level, that, that we are all underneath one master, and we all answer to that master. Go to Romans 14 and you see that. I'm not going to go there now, but when it talks about um, the subject of, of personal preferences, it's saying... You don't answer to your brother, and he doesn't answer to you. You both answer to God. So you don't need to judge your brother, and he doesn't need to judge you. You need to look at God, right? Same principle that I'm talking about here, inferiority. The ground is level. You don't have to feel inferior inferior in any way when someone of status comes before you. I know People get all excited when they hear of some celebrity is going to be around. Oh, I get to get their autograph. I get to stand in their presence. You know, when I see that stuff, I, it doesn't, like, that's another thing that doesn't do anything for me. It just doesn't. It's like, okay, they, they like, put their pants on the same way I do. They're just a human. There's only one person that deserves worship. And then finally, um, just to guard ourselves, I put the word tendency. And you might put the word sinful in front of that sinful tendency. We need to guard ourselves from prejudice and bias. And, and it goes both ways. It isn't one-sided. We have a culture that's inflamed with this right now. It's inflamed with it, and it's easy to be caught up in it. I warn you not to allow that. And it goes, again, it goes both ways. Just, again, go to social status. Working in the service industry. I'm working as a service writer at a Ford dealership, and people of means come in 
and they treat you like, you know, my name is Matt, and they treated me like a doormat sometimes. I was there. And I remember the same bias that they had toward me, I had toward them. I was just as wicked in my response as they were in their treatment of me. It goes both ways. It's not one-sided. That's my point. Any one of us can, can have those triggers, and we have to guard our heart against the sinful pride that wells up within us that somehow would, would inflate us with, a, with a, a sense of worth or value that is not ours intrinsically. Who are we intrinsically? <laughs> Just look in the scriptures. All of your righteousness is what? Filthy rags, right? We all fade as a leaf. We all are as an unclean thing. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. Romans chapter 3, the first 10 verses. There's none who understands. There's no one who does good. Not one. None of us deserve anything. And we would and ought to say as Job, I didn't bring anything into this world. I'm not taking anything with me. The Lord has given everything I have, and he has every right to take it, everything I have. Blessed be his name. Blessed be his name. So, a lot of application, but the, the real key here is that um, when it comes to truth, we are all, as Dr. O used to say, we are all heaps of dust that breathe. <laughs> mounds of clay that's what we are mounds of clay that breathe there's a good perspective for you go home with that one All right? <laughs> you came to be encouraged thanks Pastor DeClean I'm just nothing but a piece of dirt that breathes well that God loved and graciously and kindly sent his son that you might have eternal life and through Christ, you are his beloved and servants of the living God. So let's flip it. We are, in and of ourselves, nothing. But in Christ, eternally loved. And, and eternally um, brought into the very realm of the glory of God. What a, an amazing, amazing thing to, to end on. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time, for the opportunity to open your word. It says so much, we scratch the surface of it. There's more to say, but Lord, we pray that you would use what has been said to do a work in our lives through your spirit and through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John.